like you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. You can follow along as I read this passage, Luke 14, 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless with what will it be seasoned, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, uh, let him hear. Father, I pray this morning that you would uh, speak to us from your word, that you would bless it to us in the sense that you would give us understanding, that it would touch our hearts, that we would be uh, brought not just to a place of, of hearing it, but of understanding it and acting upon it. Lord, your word was intended not to inform us, but uh, also to change us. And I pray that we would hear it with those uh, kinds of ears this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as uh, evangelical believers, uh, we are committed to the idea that salvation is by grace through faith, that it is absolutely free, that it costs us nothing, that it is not a result of works. And we quote, and rightly so, Ephesians uh, 2, uh, 8 and 9 in defense of that, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. And uh, we testify to the fact that Jesus Christ has paid the price for our salvation, that He has made the atonement that covers our sin, that He has made it possible for us through His blood alone and in His righteousness alone for us to come to have eternal life in Him. That is His work, which we enter into by faith. And so we are so committed to that and so focused on that, that oftentimes uh, we fail to realize the full picture that the Scripture presents, or um, we try to make some kind of dichotomy uh, that exists between uh, saving grace that takes us to heaven and discipleship that makes us committed followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, I was reading one of the uh, older, uh, well-known preachers, uh, uh, Ironside, and uh, in his uh, commentary on this passage, the sermon that he preached on it, 
Um, he uh, made plain at the outset that going to heaven was by grace, but discipleship was another level of commitment. It was the, the next option. It was for those who wanted to be serious, uh, reproducing uh, committed followers of Jesus Christ. And so as we consider the passage this morning, uh, I want you to put those thoughts in your mind and consider with me, is this an optional second tier of salvation and uh, discipleship, or is it the same thing as and part and parcel of having eternal life in Jesus Christ? And if so, does it constitute a work? Uh, Those are good questions for us to ask. As Jesus is going down the road, he has, of course, his disciples around him, his twelve that we know of. There was also a larger company than that that are not frequently mentioned, but we know there were more. For example, he sent out the 70. Uh, There were men and women in his group. There were 120 in the upper room that were sufficiently committed that they waited for the day of Pentecost and the promise of the Father. And so we know that there was a larger company, so you can imagine that there, there were kind of like uh, layers of people following him, the inner circle, the, the next group of people, and then finally the hundreds, and he says to the crowds, the hundreds that uh, go beyond that, that are following him, they're headed down the road, <clears throat> and Jesus uh, perhaps looks behind him and sees these hundreds of people. Uh, following him down the road, you know. And I imagine that he just kind of is looking at them and he's thinking for a moment about the implications of what they're doing and he just stops. And he turns and looks at them and he says, I want you to know that if anyone is going to come after me, He has to hate his father and mother. He has to hate his wife. He has to hate his children. He has to hate his brothers and sisters. In fact, he has to hate himself. If you want to follow me, that's the requirement. Take up your cross. Can you imagine? It's like, whoa. What is he saying? Well, we know that obviously he is not saying that he wants you to develop a hate list of everybody that's close to you. (laughs) He's using a figure of speech that we call hyperbole. He is greatly exaggerating the point to draw the contrast to make the, 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 uh, the, the gap between, uh, devotion to him and devotion to everything else become obviously apparent. And what he is saying is, if you're going to come after me, I have to be number one. I have to be of primary importance in your life. And your devotion and your commitment and your love for me has got to be to such an extent that if you set me aside, your parents, your spouse, your children, your siblings, 
the gap is so wide it looks like hatred. Your devotion to me has got to be uncontested. It's got to distance your love for me from the kind of love you have for anything else. So that I am absolutely the most important person in your life. Now, you know, if that were anybody but Jesus, it would be horribly egotistical. But when you're God, you have every right to demand unswerving allegiance and loyalty. And Jesus, after all, in this capacity as Lord and Master, Redeemer, Savior, Messiah, has every right to demand this kind of commitment. He has every right to do that. It's interesting that he takes the people that normally are closest to us to, to draw his comparison. He says it's important that the primacy that you give to me in your life means that I am far more important than anyone else in your life, including your own spouse and your own children. Whatever I ask, whatever the commitment is, whatever it costs, you must be willing to pay it no matter the implications to your family. That's a tremendous level of commitment. Then, Jesus really drives the point home, and I don't know how many times we have considered the implications of this, but he drives the point home and he says, in fact, you have to hate your own life. Now, Paul, when he is talking about the marriage relationship in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, husbands, love your wives the way that Christ loved the church. He died for her and gave himself up on her behalf. Love her and cherish her the way Christ loves and cherishes the church because no man ever hated his own flesh. And you think about that a moment. We are naturally prone to take care of number one. We are just wired that way. To look out for ourselves. To consider our own interest. To make sure that we get what we want. We're just wired that way. It takes an act of God to change that natural bent of the human heart to protect oneself. It is an amazing opportunity of grace that a person is willing to sacrifice himself or his interest for anyone else. And so, even in the marriage relationship, Paul draws this uh, analogy and he says, uh, fellas, we know that you love yourselves. That's not the question here. But we want to say that you need to love your wife more than you love yourself, the way Christ loved the church. And Jesus 
in this uh, expression of discipleship is saying, in essence, the same thing. You might be able to give up your spouse, your kids, your parents, your sisters and brothers. In fact, Jesus doesn't say this, but I've just been around long enough to know that could solve a lot of problems for some folks. I'll gladly get rid of my family in the name of Jesus. That'll give me a plausible excuse. <laughs> but then he, then he says, and yourself. Uh-oh. That means my desires, my ambitions, my wants, my interest, my goals, my direction. I have to love Him more than I love what I want. I have to love Him and be devoted to Him to such an extent that what I want for myself is like hatred by comparison. Because whenever there's competition between the two, I have to hate what I want and love what He wants. And as if that were not plain enough, He drives the point home by saying, in fact, take up your cross and come after Me. Now, we have turned the cross into all kinds of symbols of beauty and reverence and inspiration. We wear jewelry around our neck. We hang it off our ears and <laughs> lapels and wherever we can put it. We put it on churches and signs and letterhead. And we've made the cross an ornament of beauty. We know in our heads it wasn't really like that, but we tend to think of these, these neatly drawn lines or um, embellishments. The cross was rough. Any old wood will do. It was harsh. It was designed by the Romans as an instrument that would cause death as slowly and painfully as possible. And the imagery was common in the first century in that time. The Jews knew all too well what it looked like to carry your cross. We're given a glimpse of that in the uh, crucifixion of our Lord when He is forced to bear the cross beam to the Mount of Calvary. They would often, before the the condemned was actually crucified, they would nail or tie their arms to the cross member, which was not light in itself, and force them, after a severe beating, to carry that to a place where it would then be hoisted or affixed to the vertical member, and they would be hung on that cross. And any time someone saw someone carrying the cross, they knew they were going to die. They were not coming back. And that it was going to be at the cost of their lives that they bore that cross. And so Jesus makes it very clear that the cost of following Him means to die. 
to the world as far as yourself is concerned. He becomes number one. He becomes supreme. He becomes Lord and Master. And in essence, we make a decision at the outset that nothing else will ever compete with our loyalty and devotion to Him. And so he says, let me give you some things to think about. Think about a fellow that builds a tower. Now, we don't typically go around building towers. When I lived over there, we built a tower in the backyard for the kids to play in. But we don't normally build towers. But they, they did build towers. If you had a lot of land or a large piece of property, you were wealthy, uh, you, you would uh, build a tower. Today, we would probably call it a silo. It often was attached to a barn or an outbuilding, and it uh, was something that you could climb up into, and it was uh, used for security and to oversee your, your, um, your flocks and your crops and whatever else, and they would store things in it. It was something that people did. And so Jesus said, suppose this guy's going to build a tower, and he gets out there, and he gets his slaves together and his helpers together, and he starts uh, digging the foundation, he gets the foundation laid, and he comes up uh, about two or three feet out of the ground, and he runs out of money. Ever seen any apartment buildings around the area that got started and just seemed to never get finished? I, there was uh, one down in Algonquin. I just did, like, for years, that thing just sat there. I kept wondering, who's going to finish that? Obviously, the original builder ran out of capital, and the, the building halted. And you just kind of shake your head at something like that, and you say, didn't they see where this was going? Weren't they capitalized going into it? Didn't they consider the cost? Didn't they understand? And, and you walk down the road, and you look out in the field, and there's this guy's tower. It's obviously what he was trying to do, but it's only about this tall, you know? And you laugh, and you say, what a fool! Look what he started out to do. He couldn't finish. He just didn't have enough money. He didn't see where this was going. That's some businessman he is. And we laugh at him. And he said, or, or a king that goes out to, to, win, to fight a battle when there's an army coming against him and his spies come back and say, there's 20,000 men in that army. And he says, I've got 10. He says, he's got to consider... Well, uh, Will one of my men take two of theirs? Because if he won't, I'm in trouble. And there's no point getting everybody slaughtered. In fact, when all your men die and you're the only one that's left, guess what? There's no one to protect you. <laughs> you're next. And so the king considers that situation and he says... If I can't overcome them, I'm going to send a delegation and make peace because it makes no sense to fight that battle. He says, this is common sense. So I want you to think about what it means to, to be my disciple. I want you to think about the cost. I want you to consider what will happen if you have to choose between me and your parents. 
you know, we're insulated from that to a certain extent. We think, well, that'll never happen. Well, it could. I mean, we live in a relatively insulated country, but suppose you decide to follow Christ and God calls you to go to some distant land. And you have to leave your parents. And they're at a time in life when they need you. But the call of God is strong upon you. What do you do? Do you trust God with your parents and obey His call? Or do you turn back and take care of your parents? You know, there's, there's just those kinds of things. I, I, I told the story, belabored it a little bit, I guess, in the first hour, but... Um, all my life, except for one brief period of time right after I was saved, all my life I had planned to study medicine. So when I announced to my mother that I was going to be a pastor, a preacher, it was costly. That was not her vision for my future. She had everybody talking to me, trying to talk some sense into me. I remember my band director, whom he had known me since the fifth grade. I'm a senior now. He calls me into his office. He says, Paul, this, religious, this religion thing's getting out of hand with you. Your mom called me. You've got to have a conversation. He said, your life's like a pie. You've got to realize that. And it's got slices to it. And he says, there's, there's your, your career slice, and there's your education slice, there's your your hobbies and your interests. And he says, and your, your religion slice. And he says, you've got to keep it in balance and in perspective. And I said to Mr. James, what you need to understand is Jesus is the whole pie to me. That did not help. <laughs> he realized at that point I was a lost cause. I don't know what he told my mother, but he didn't change me. But it got to the point where I felt like I was just going to have to leave if I were going to pursue the call of God. My mother was a Christian. But this whole idea of being a preacher scared the liver out of her. And she had no desire for me to follow that course. There are people in the world whom to follow Christ means the ostracism of their family. They're counted dead. They're put out. They're disinherited. That's in the places in the world where they don't just kill you. There are places, Muslim countries, where if you become a follower of Jesus, a family member kills you because you're a disgrace to the family and the community. It's costly. Jesus says you need to weigh these things. You need to think about the implications. You need to think about what it means to put me ahead of your future, your goals, your career. Because I may ask you to do something that is incompatible with what you want. Or what you think you want. And you need to think about that. You need to count the cost. And so... As he shares these illustrations, he gets down to the end of his uh, explanation and he says, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. 
Now, we know that Jesus did not mean that literally in the sense of getting rid of everything you own. Because everybody there was wearing clothes, and I think they probably stayed dressed after his address. No pun intended, but... So obviously he didn't mean that they would divest themselves immediately of every single thing they own. But he is saying without any hesitation, you must distance yourself between your wants and desires and what you own and following me. You are no longer an owner. You are now a steward. I'm the owner. And you do, in fact, divest yourself of everything to me. I'm the owner. And I will guide you in what you're to do with it. And you are to follow me in what I tell you. So that you don't hold anything as more important than me. If you do, it's another God. And I will have no other gods before me. I am supreme in your life. So you must be willing to give up anything I ask. And do anything I want. So, I come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. So is this another tier, another level of kind of being a Jesus follower from salvation, or is there really only one level of salvation, and this is it? Look with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 18, just over a few pages. Again, from the New American Standard, a a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to notice the question. The man did not ask, What must I do to be your disciple? What he asked was, What must I do to inherit eternal life? In our terms, he was saying, what does it take for me to go to heaven? What is required for me to be saved? That's what he's asking. And Jesus said, well, you need to pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've disappointed you and let you down. And I want to ask you to forgive my sins. And I want to ask you to come into my heart and be my Savior. And uh, when I die, I want you to take me to heaven. That's what Jesus said, right? No. That's what we say. What did Jesus say? He said, first of all, why are you calling me good? No one is good except God alone. But we'll get to that in a moment. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. In other words, Jesus went to the the Ten Commandments and laid out the commandments of, of person to person on that level. He's not talking about the first four. 
But he's talking about the horizontal commandments. And when you take them at face value, there are a number of people who have kept those commandments. If you take them at face value. And so the guy says, well, from my childhood, I've done that. The the Apostle Paul said, I've done that. He said, is touching the the law uh, blameless? Except when it started talking about coveting, and that was happening on the inside. But in terms of my practice, I've, I've been obedient. And so this ruler says, I've, I've done that. And he says, well, one thing you're still lacking, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, My apologies. I was talking to you about the real committed level of Christians. But if all you want to do is go to heaven, then I can go back and lead you in the sinner's prayer and you can go to heaven. You don't have to do any of this. Right? No, he said... How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Commentators just love this verse. They have a heyday trying to explain which gate in Jerusalem this was. Jesus is talking about a fishbone with a hole in it called a needle and a camel going through it. And, and we know that because the way the disciples responded, they said, Lord, that's not even possible. Who can be saved? And Jesus said, well, it's a good observation, guys. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, Jesus was saying here, in order to make the level of commitment that is required, you really need the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in the process of salvation. You can't do this by yourself. You do need God. He comes to us. He makes it possible. But I want you to notice in this passage that the wealthy ruler was asking about eternal life And Jesus was talking to him in terms of discipleship and selling everything that he had. And the reason is because this wealthy ruler had money as his God. And Jesus was drawing the distinction that if you're going to be saved and have life eternal, I have to be your God. And that's not just in theory, that's in practice. I have to be your God. So sell what you have and get rid of it. Give it to the poor so that there's nothing uh, conflicting in your heart and then come follow me. Now, I want to take you back to, to Matthew 14 and the passage that we're looking at. And many people at this point raise the objection and say, but that's works. No, what Jesus is saying is you must make a decision. 
I said the first time around this morning, there's no work involved. If you want to get technical, there's some neurons firing and there's some work going on somewhere, but that's not what we're talking about. You don't have to do anything to have eternal life. You don't have to live righteously to earn your salvation. You don't have to um, join the church and get baptized. But you do have to make a decision. And the decision that you must make is, I am going to turn from myself and my ways and my goals and my purposes and my sin, and I am going to make Jesus my God, my Lord, and follow Him. I am going to give everything I am to Him Because He died to purchase me. He died for me. I'm going to follow Him. That's a decision. It's not a work. It's a commitment. Friends, you and I both know that we fail in a lot of ways. In fact, people automatically raise the question at this point, well, what about carnal Christians? What's a carnal Christian? Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, and 3. But you really need to go back and read those chapters to clarify it in your own mind. First of all, when you, when you read it this week sometime, notice what he says about the Corinthian followers. Notice that they're committed. Notice that they're gifted. Notice that they have the Holy Spirit. Notice that changes have come about in their life. Uh, Paul tells them in his second letter, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. There are new attitudes. There are new desires. There are new interests. If you've been born again, there's been a transformation inside of you. We want to think that a carnal Christian is someone who made a a a verbal confession of faith somewhere back in their childhood, Awana, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, or uh, some dramatic emotional moment at a youth camp, or somewhere along the way they made this emotional decision, but now they don't want to have anything to do with church, and they're not interested in being with God's people, and they're living their own lives, and they're doing their own thing, and they don't care much about God. And we say, well, that's a carnal Christian. That's not a carnal Christian. Most likely, that's a lost person that had an emotional reaction. They never counted the cost. They never made a commitment. Because Paul tells us very plainly, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. There has been a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. And I have to tell you very honestly that although as believers we do sin, sometimes we sin ignorantly, sometimes we just didn't see it coming, sometimes we walk into it with our eyes wide open, but we do sin. But if you're really born again and you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you are in conflict with God when that occurs. You know it. And so, 
a carnal Christian is not someone who is not interested in God any longer and living for them, but, oh, they must have gotten saved. A carnal Christian is a committed disciple of Jesus Christ who's trying to live out their Christian life in their own strength and the power of their flesh. They're fleshly. And as a consequence, they are failing. And they're looking like those silly Corinthians. And they're making all kinds of blunders. And the, the fleshly nature is rising up because they have not learned to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. A spiritual believer is one who's walking in the Spirit. A fleshly believer is one who's trying to walk for Christ in the power of their flesh. And the natural man is one who's never been converted. So Jesus makes this distinction in in this passage. And he says, if you're going to follow me, these are the requirements. You must make me number one in your life. I must be supreme. And you can have no other gods before me. And that is not a work. That is a decision based on faith in the grace of God revealed to us through the cross and offered us in Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, the Holy Spirit takes up residence and begins to transform us. So when Jesus gets to the end of this passage... That we're looking at, he says, therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless. Either for the soil or the manure pile, it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I did all kind of background study on that. Because um, some of the commentators say uh, salt gets damp and evaporates. No. Salt is what you have left when everything else gets damp and evaporates. That's how they got it in the first place. They went down by the salt sea and they scraped it off the surface of the sand. Ah, but there's the problem. They scraped up gypsum and they scraped up sand and silica and all these other kinds of things with it and they got it all together. And they had all kind of uses for salt in those days that we don't even think of. They did, in fact, mix it with manure and put it in their clay ovens because that's what they cooked with. They cooked with uh, the sheep dung or the camel dung or whatever. And it's such an appetizing thought to conclude with. And they mix the salt uh, and they put it in their ovens or um, they used it as a part of their fertilizer. In right proportions, I'm sure. Don't put salt on your garden. But it was mixed in with all these other things. And in, in the use of it over time, it did get damp and it leached away, not evaporated out, but it apparently uh, the, the impurities began to predominate over time. And it wasn't any good for anything. Do you imagine, I just, I have this vision, I'm a saltaholic, I confess it. And I just have this vision of sprinkling half salt, half white sand on my hamburger. 
Yes. Drip. Ooh. Gritty. Yuck. Mix it in with a little gypsum and then you can have sheetrock in your esophagus. Yuck. And Jesus says it's not any good. Serving no useful purpose. Do you get it? What are you, salty or sandy? Are you full of flavor, preserving, seasoning, bringing Jesus into every situation your life goes into? Are you just causing people to grind their teeth because you're not making any difference for God or the devil? You're just, you're just sandy and gritty and useless. Have you counted the cost? Do you know where you are today in terms of your commitment? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about being sinless. I'm talking about being committed, unswervingly, unquestionably committed to Jesus Christ. Where are you this morning? Father, I pray that you would cause us to examine ourselves. And Lord, for those who have made the commitment, reinforce and assure us of your work in our lives, even as Paul said, I know and am persuaded that you are able to keep that which we have committed to you against that day. But Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has not counted the cost and made the commitment, I want to ask you to disturb them, to cause them to examine themselves. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Test yourselves. Don't you know Jesus Christ is living inside of you unless you're reprobate? Give us the courage to face the truth. Better to know it today than to find out in the judgment. And so I ask you to move upon us by your grace and your mercy. Thank you that salvation is free. And it's available to all who will turn away from themselves and turn to you as Lord and Master. In Jesus' name, amen.